Welcome one and all to another one of our financial well-being podcasts. My name's David Lloyd. I'm an actor, I'm a writer, I'm a broadcaster uh, and I'm here with my very good friend Chris Budd. Chris, tell us about yourself. I run a financial planning practice called Ovation Finance. Um, I do a few other things as well, play guitar, do a bit of writing. I do have a couple of announcements actually before we get underway, David, if I may. I'm all ears. I'm agog to hear your news. Well, the first uh, major bit of news is I now do officially have a canoe for sale. So if is it the famous canoe that's been referenced the very in previous? One. Yeah, we've been through another summer. It still has only had uh, rainwater on its bottom, and I think it's time we, we we got rid of this thing. So if any of our listeners want to make an offer for a, a very nice canoe, um, anything above five hundred pounds will be accepted. <laughs> is that what you paid for it? No, I paid three hundred and fifty. Oh. <laughs> that's why he's so successful, listeners. <laughs> Uh, and the other announcement is uh, I've finally um, abandoned the second novel, which means uh, it's finished and is off for editing and it should be out in December. Which oh, is fantastic. Exciting. So you're not abandoned in the sense that you've given up on it. Well, Neil Gaiman, uh, the writer Neil Gaiman said, novels are never finished, they're just abandoned. So in that in that spirit, uh, it's been abandoned and it can't be polished anymore. It's as good as it's going to get. So. Well, we look forward to hearing about it and no doubt once it's out in future podcasts, I dare will. say it will be mentioned. I wouldn't be at all surprised. <laughs> right, so... Um, what are we talking about today? Today, you and I are going to have a chat about increasing financial options. The idea here is going to be that um, financial options is one of the five key strands of financial well-being that's mentioned in the Financial Well-Being book, uh, which did you notice over the summer got to number three in the WH Smith's business book chart? I didn't notice that, but that's great news. It also got to number one, but that's because I put it there in Edinburgh Airport, so that one didn't really count. <laughs> so you actually went through Edinburgh Airport and you saw your book yep. on sale in WH Smith's. Yep. So firstly, that must have been a real buzz for you. It was good fun. I also, we were going on holiday with some friends and they quickly got dragged in to see it as well. <laughs> but then actually you saw it was only at number three. So you physically moved your book and put it in the top. Ah, guilty. Yes, yeah. I did. I well did. Done. And then I spoke to another author um, and uh, turns out he does the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to trust ratings for anything ever again. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt. That's all right. So there's two ways of getting more financial options. One of them is to have more money. Um, and that is financial planning. That's working hard. That's all. But what we're going to talk about is how you can increase your financial options when having more money isn't possible. Oh, well, that's good because, I mean... Uh, I know we all like to think and we've often talked about uh, success, being financially successful and having money, but obviously it isn't always the case. So I'll be very interested to hear your solutions to that particular conundrum. Before we move on, though, as ever, we always are looking to hear from our many listeners. And we do actually in great numbers. And, and also many of our Twitter followers are professional financial planners. Uh, remember, our Twitter handle is at finwellbeing. Um, and some of these uh, professional financial planners have been giving us some of their tips to share. As ever, in every podcast, we give out one or two. And I know you and I have been talking about perhaps making a feature of it, its own theme tune. We could give it a name. Should we invite our uh, followers to come up with a name for I this think, section? I think we should. I think we should. So if anybody out there has got a suggestion of what we can call uh, the section where we give out tips from professional financial advisors... Keep it clean, please, and polite, if you possibly can. Uh, yeah, bring it on. And the theme tune, you could 
write the theme tune, sing the theme tune. <laughs> be a great opportunity for you, Chris. Do you know what we never mentioned, actually? Given that this podcast has already had a theme of me bigging myself up, the theme tune to this podcast was written and recorded by me, actually, so maybe we could find one of my, another thing I did like 20 years ago that we could drag out. Excellent. Right, so... Um, have you got any for today that you've got that you'd like to read out? Yep. Uh, firstly, we're going to uh, mention a chap called Nick Lincoln, whose Twitter name is at Hat Tip Nick. He gives us a couple of pithy tips. He's a pithy chap all round. Firstly, uh, he said that cheap shoes are a false economy. Hmm. Well, that can be true. I think cheap everything can sometimes be a false economy. There's nothing worse than forking out a bit of money on a pair of shoes and then within a month or two you find that they're leaking or they don't uh, work. But then again, for some people, that's all they can afford. That's true. But then the short-term saving means to more cost long-term. So that, uh, Annie Shaw, who we've had on our podcast before, at Cash Questions, uh, she summed it up even pithier. Buy cheap, pay twice. Yes, it's true to say that if you buy an expensive pair of shoes, they might last you longer than a cheap pair. The problem is for those people that don't have the cash initially, to buy them and it's all very well saying well take a long-term view but if you're on a very low income or perhaps you're on benefits maybe cheap shoes is all that you can afford that's absolutely true all the choices we have to make going back to nick lincoln again the second comment that he made was to be aware that the financial media mainly exists to sell advertising not to help you oh, that's maybe slightly controversial which is why i got nick to say it not me but Jeff Prestridge's podcast, remember the chat we had with him, he did say something similar. The financial journalist admitted that the traditional financial media does focus on bad stories and products rather than happiness. You'll see on the six o'clock news, the headline, billions were wiped off the value of shares in the stock market today. What you don't see the following day is that billions were added back on. So actually following financial press and the traditional financial media doesn't always focus on things that in these podcasts we're trying to get people to think about. Yeah, it's a good point. I saw one of those memes that crop up on Facebook from time to time. But this one I found particularly interesting uh, on a parallel subject, and it was related to the image of women in the modern world. And they took some of the really, really popular women's magazines, and they took a pair of scissors to them, and they removed all of the paid content i.e. adverts or editorial that had actually, it was posing as editorial, but actually it was advertorial. And they took a pair of scissors and took all of that out. And out of a 300-page magazine, they were left with six pages. <laughs> wow. wow, I'm not going to make comment on that. That's fascinating. So we're talking about financial options in life. Well, that sounds pretty straightforward to me. Surely options increase with wealth. Is it any more complicated than that? It can be, uh, to an extent. If it were that simple, then we would effectively be saying money makes you happy. Now, there is some truth in that. Money can make you happy. If you have someone who, on a relatively low income and they get a bonus that means they can go on holiday, they're going to be a bit happier. So there's no argument that money does make you happy. On the other hand, if you gave Bill Gates another 50 quid, it won't make any difference to him. So between those two extremes, there's going to be the point where money doesn't make you any happier. Now, there's a very interesting survey. I've mentioned a book uh, called Wellbeing by Tom Rath and Jim Harter, who work for the research organisation Gallup. And they have ex conducted extensive studies to find that there is a direct link with happiness levels of a country to the size of its GDP per capita, its standard of living. So that's not rocket science. A basic amount of money provides food and shelter, plus a few luxuries. 
On the other hand, there's another book I'm, I'm rather addicted to at the moment called The Antidote by Oliver Berkman. And that explores areas of negativity. It's an antidote to the traditional self-help book, hence the title. He suggests that if we stop running so hard from away from experiencing negative emotions, we might be able to learn from them. In particular, he talks at one point about a slum area of Nigeria called, I think it's pronounced Kibera. Hundreds of thousands of people living the most appalling conditions, and it's awful to read this stuff. And yet, visitors to the area note the overall level of happiness. It's nowhere near as bad as they would expect. Now, Berkman is very careful to avoid some of the more negative conclusions that you could get from that, but he simply notes that happiness and money are not necessarily directly linked. So there's two ways of achieving more financial options in life. One is to get a bit more money so you can do more stuff. But the other one is to change what you do in life to fit the amount of money you have. I think I used this line in the Ian Wall podcast, but creating a financial plan is at its very heart very simple. Firstly, you work out what you want from life. Secondly, you spend your money on that. Of course, the problem is working out what you want from life is actually really, really tough. Yeah, that's a good point because sometimes we don't really know what we want from life until we're actually doing it. I think for some people, they might set off. Uh, Ian was a very interesting case of point. I don't want to spend too much time talking about a previous podcast. But I think he talked, didn't he, about saying that the most important thing to him was that his family were happy and that he was secure and comfortable. And he worked out that they could get that quality of life by moving to France. So his goal was he wanted success and uh, happiness for his family rather than I want to go and live in France. But but going to live in France became a means to an end for him. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a friend at the moment who um, is an ex-army chap and he's at a crossroads in life. He's 50, he's just had a baby. Well, he hasn't, his wife's had a baby. Um, and he's trying to work out what to do in life. And he's really struggling to work out what do I want my life to look like. So this isn't easy stuff and I'm not suggesting it is, but it's still essential. Oh, it is. And we all reach crossroads in life. And I, you know, I had one when I was 50, actually. I'd been working in the creative industry as a writer, as a, an actor, but I needed a bit more stability in my life. And so I went out and almost created another job for myself, which was working at the Bristol City Football Club, uh, because I knew that that would bring me the security that I needed. And so that became a vehicle for me. And part of that was financial security as well. So that became a vehicle for me to buy myself or create for myself the contentment and security that I needed in my life at that point. So there's decisions we make, aren't there? The decisions we make, and we, we should make those decisions consciously. One good example that we see in our business ovation is business people who have a small company and they want to sell it. And very often the value of that business is something that's been set by maybe their accountant or their own expectations. And they maybe struggle to sell it because they can't get what they think it's worth. What we try to get across to people is you need to work out what you need to sell your business for. How much does it need to raise for you rather than how much is it worth? Because if the need is actually half of the value that it's worth, you could sell it in an instant, cheap. And that might go against the grain, but it will give you all that you need to do what you want in life. And also as a small business person, I think you need to be really clear about why you're in that business. I had uh, many, many years ago now when I was a young man and I used to work for a friend of mine whose passion was sound, sound in the theatre. So he was a sound engineer. So he had all the equipment. So he used to do 
uh, the sound design for small shows locally up in Manchester, which is where I was living at the time. And I used to help him drive in vans, help him do the get-ins and get-outs and the fitting up. But he actually loved it. He was like a pig in poo when he was there with his amplifiers and checking out the sound and getting the microphones. And he was very good at it too. But gradually, over the years, his business grew and grew and grew. He had to take on more people, more drivers, more technicians, more sound engineers. The more his business grew, the further he got away from doing the thing that had created the passion for him in the first place. And then he just became the managing director of a company that was very successful, but I don't think ever brought him the happiness and the satisfaction that he had when it was just him with a few amplifiers and speakers which he stored in his mum's garage. That's a great story. I can think of a number of examples like that in, our, in my business life, absolutely. It's funny how very often people who do make pretty good money, um, they go back to the things that they did as a hobby. So the uh, finance director of a major bank that I know who spends his time messing around with steam engines. One of the things that can stop people from um, finding that happiness from, from financial options is a really interesting area I want to talk about for a minute of permission. So what do you mean by that? Well, there are many forms of permission. Uh, actually, it's, a, it's quite an unstudied area, something I'd like to look at a bit more. You get an older generation, maybe, who don't feel that they can spend money. Uh, we have a client who is reasonably wealthy, nothing, nothing extravagant, but she's not spending her income and she's in retirement and she could do a lot more than she does. And when we ask her, why won't you spend the money? She says, oh, dad wouldn't like it if I spent the money. He's been dead for 20 years. That is really interesting. I've come across that so much. That bit often a parental voice, not always, but often a parental voice. And so many people who live their lives through living up to the expectations of their parents, even though, as you say, they may no longer be with them, or, or indeed they may no longer have that direct... You know, you're talking about somebody in their 50s or 60s or 70s that is still worried about upsetting their parents. It's just programmed into us, isn't it? Mm. So we're trying to encourage people to, to spend money. You know, in a lot of the podcasts, we've talked about how to spend money to increase happiness. And... Um, only spend what you can afford to spend. Let's not, you know, don't go on credit cards, etc. But spending is a part of well-being. So having permission to spend, permission to be happy. We another area is we run a well-being workshop for groups of employees, fifteen to twenty employees at a time. And one of the things that we do in this hour or so is we get them to write down five things that makes them happy, and then we get them to write down five things that they don't do but that would make them happy. And what we're trying to get to here is motivations in life. Permission to be happy, permission to do things that make you happy. I'll give you an example from my personal life. Um, about seven years ago, I realized I was a bit unhappy and so I decided I need to change my life to start writing because that's what I wanted to do to make me happy. It took three sessions with a business coach for me to get to that stage. But I realised what I needed to do to make myself happy. And having permission for, for myself to do that was a really, really big step. Yeah, that's massive because some people actually don't believe that they have a right to be happy because they are, for whatever reasons, they're locked into this sense of it might be a sense of duty, it might be a sense of having to please parents, having to please a spouse, children, a sense of always wanting to do things for other people and always putting themselves second. Uh, and therefore that realization that you can give yourself permission to be happy and change your life 
if necessary, in order to achieve that, is a massive breakthrough for some people. It is. It is. And it's something that I really, really encourage. And having a decent financial plan in place to know what you can afford, actually that informs that happiness and the two things go hand in hand. So we're trying to get people to work out motivations, work out what would make you happy. So let me just give you an example of what I mean by motivations. It's a bit of a nebulous word. There's a lot of talk about bucket lists at the moment, uh, things that you want to do before you die, etc. Um, what we're trying to find is the motivations behind the items on that bucket list. Let's take an example. When we ask people for things that they want to do in life that they're not currently doing, the most common thing that they mention is travel. Now, suppose somebody says they've always wanted to visit Rome. What are they really meaning? What's behind that? What they might mean is they want to see more of the world in general. They want to increase their experiences and Rome is just the first on the list. And actually, when they say they're trying to increase their experiences, it's very likely they're talking about doing it with somebody else. And so they're trying to improve their social relationships and improve their memories. Both non-financial things we've talked about in this podcast before. So the motivation isn't travel to Rome, isn't see the Colosseum. The motivation is increase your experiences and to spend more time with your loved ones and improve your social relationships. We had one client who wanted to spend five weekends a year going around uh, Europe watching opera. That's a wonderful thing to decide. Yes, now as you know, that uh, because I've talked about it before, um, I've travelled a lot, but I've travelled largely on my own. My, my now late wife, Dinah, uh, had MS. She was seriously disabled and one of my escapes from the reality of looking after her was to travel. And so I went to some great places, I, you know, climbed Everest, not to the very top, but I've been to base camp, you know, I've been to the Andes, uh, whale watching in, in Norway, I've done some really interesting travelling, but always on my own. And in the end, no matter how many fantastic places you go to, if you haven't got that special person in your life to share it with, it's not the same. And now I'm in a new relationship and we're moving towards a point, you know, where we can stop working. And, and, and one of the things we both want to do is travel. I want to carry on doing that travels, but I want to do it with the person I love. And that, I think, is a massive difference. Yeah, those quality of those social relationships is everything to, to, to overall well-being. So there's that element, therefore, about increasing options, about know thyself working out what you want from life. And very often when you work out what you want from life, you realize it's not linked to the amount of money you have. It's linked to who you do things with. A second one can be peer pressure um, and stoicism. Now, I want to just talk a little bit here about um, going back to Oliver Berkman's book, The Antidote, which I really recommend. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. I read very few nonfiction books, and this is one I got through, it's great. And he talks about the ancient Greek philosophy of the Stoics. Now, this led to the word Stoicism, but doesn't mean quite the same thing. What the Stoics used to teach was that nothing outside your own mind can be truly said to be positive or negative. I'll just say that again. Nothing outside your own mind can be truly said to be positive or negative. So it's only how we interpret things that turns something into a positive or negative. It's up to us. The only thing that causes suffering are the beliefs that we hold about those things. So if I believe that owning a large flat screen TV or a certain type of car or wearing a certain brand of clothing is important to my happiness, then it will be. If I don't think that it is, it won't be. It's quite simple when you say it like that, but a lot harder to put into practice, I think. So I think a major step to achieving financial well-being is acknowledging this fact. Happiness is up to us. It's in our control to a large degree.
I think you're right, Chris. And I know that uh, there have been times in my life, and I'm sure we've all had them, where I've been depressed, felt a bit low, a bit up and down, may have been to do with the circumstances of my life. But I think a lot of the time it was very much how I looked on it. And there are obviously external contributing factors that can affect the way that you look on things. But I can remember there have been times in the past when I felt really, really low. But then, for some reason, the circumstances haven't changed. But I've ended up feeling happier about things, more accepting about them. Um, and I think, in the end, there must have been a level at which I made a decision, probably a subconscious decision, to make myself feel better about it. And that's been a cyclical thing in my life. There was a survey done in the 70s, which I heard somebody give out, uh, mentioned a talk, which I absolutely love. And they took two groups of people. One group were had suffered a really, really horrific accident and had lost multiple limbs. So a traumatic event. And the other group were lottery winners, had won a big amount of money. And they asked those two groups of people their levels of happiness before the event and their levels of happiness after the event. Now, let me just ask you, what do you think the results of that survey were? Uh, well, I mean, the obvious thing that I think you want me to say is, well, clearly, before I lost my legs, I was much happier than I am now, but I suspect that wasn't the case. It wasn't, because the answer was, across the two groups, whichever were happiest before the event were happy after the event. Uh -huh. whichever were unhappy before the event were unhappy after the event so happiness is a state of mind it's a choice the event made no difference to their levels of happiness yeah that's very interesting and I certainly and I think this is to do with growing a little bit older as well I think you recognise or one recognises that you have patterns in your own life so I know when I have these little black dogs that descend on me as they very occasionally do even now I go oh hello here we go again I'll just sit with that for a couple of days and it'll go away. And it does. Another barrier to happiness is self-limiting beliefs, of which peer pressure is one example. It's a similar sort of thing. It might be that we believe we have to have more money to be happy, for example, which is something clearly in this podcast we're trying to debunk. Uh, perhaps we think that unless we have certain things in place, we can't make any change. Um, this is a coaching thing um, as well. People often use this as a tactic to give permission to remain stuck, to not make any change, because they think that, well, I can't make any change because that's not happened. But the, to pick up on your peer pressure point, I think that's very true. We've already talked about the influence that parents, even even dead parents, can still have on people. But quite often it could be a spouse, it could be a brother or a sister. Oh, you don't want to do that. You can't do that. People like us don't do that. You don't deserve that. And you've always got voices. I'm, I've done some life coaching stuff in the past as well. And quite often people would come along and they would say, oh, I, I, I can't do that. My friends are always telling me that I can't do that. And so what we would say, the people who are running the course, well, maybe you should change your friends then, because actually I believe that you can do that. And, and, and I think it's when you rid yourself of those often negative voices and listen to your own voice that you can actually then affect change in your life. I think that's great advice. And in fact, I would perhaps uh, broaden that out slightly maybe to say, just do something. Just do something different. We get this often in our financial planning practice where people will keep delaying a meeting and delaying the meeting because they say they've got a few things to sort out first. Well, actually, 
the financial planning meeting is the one thing that you need to help you realise what you need to sort out. Action is always the thing that affects change. And uh, I can remember my uh, dad saying to me many, many years ago, he says, Dave, he says, I don't know what it is about you. He said, you're, you're one of the luckiest people I know. Whenever your back is against the wall, something always comes up. And for years, I believed that that was the case, that I was just actually lucky. And then I realised that what was happening to me, the cycle that I was in, is that I would get perhaps these low periods or I would become passive. I would stop doing stuff. I would then reach a point where I realised that my back indeed was against the wall. Quite often it was financial or it might have been career-based. And I needed to do something about it to make it change. And the minute that I then started to change my behaviour and behave in a more positive way and, and make use of the skills that I believe I had, then things did change. But if it was luck, it was luck that I created for myself. We have to throw in the old classic Gary Player quote at this point, don't we? Which is, uh, after a good round of golf and somebody said, you were very lucky today, Gary Player said, it's funny, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Exactly right. So we've covered a lot of areas here, actually, in terms of permission, motivation, ignoring other people's voices, listening to our own. How can we put this into practice? We go through a cycle throughout our lives of having an experience which creates values. Those values lead to actions. Those actions lead to a new experience. And this leads to beliefs based on our experiences. And we confirm these by our own actions. So in order to create more options in life, we therefore need to challenge our beliefs. We need to break that cycle. We need to understand that beliefs are not truths. So I think that this is really hard to do on your own. I think it's very hard to challenge your own assumptions. And uh, OK, I'm a qualified business coach, so maybe I'm a little biased here. But I think a third party, maybe it's a friend, but professional help through a coach would be a really good way of doing this. Get your friends to challenge you. Write down your beliefs. There's a section on our website and in the book about this that you can use. And a really good question to ask yourself or to have asked of your beliefs is, where is the evidence for that? Prove it. Prove that that's the case. And if you can't, it might just be that it's your belief and not a fact. And in that way, break that cycle. Fascinating stuff, Chris. I think we've covered a lot of quite philosophical points in today's podcast. So what I would suggest to anybody is to go back to the book, uh, go to the website, and you will find lots of tips there in terms of how you can apply some of the stuff we've been waffling on about to making hard, practical changes in your life that will benefit you particularly when it comes to financial matters. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial wellbeing. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at David underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. Cutie the bomb met her at a beauty salon with a baby Louis Vuitton under her underarm.